0: Maybe. A great reminder. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm so tempted to take credit. But all the praise goes to Jesus. So glad you're here this morning and joining us for worship. What a glorious time we've had and singing praises to God. And now we come to consider His Word. And I was thinking about it this morning, actually, absolutely convicted that I've come up with a lot of thoughts, but it's just advice. But Let's allow the Word of God to wash over us this morning as we consider His Word. When I was growing up, uh, we would always go to Atlanta to celebrate Independence Day. Uh, We would go spend time with my uncle and aunt and family down there, and uh, that involved all kinds of celebrations, but it also included the uh, Peachtree Road Race, that 10K that goes through downtown Atlanta. So my father, my uncle, my aunt, sometimes my brother, sometimes other people would run in the Peachtree Road race while we were there. Well, my brother got a little nostalgic this year and he said, Why don't we, for July 4th, let's all go to Atlanta, we'll take our kids, we'll do it just like we were when we were kids, which means we had to run the Peachtree Road race. But we did not decide until about a week before that we were for sure gonna do it, and so um, I didn't really train for that six mile race. And uh, I like ice cream just a little too much to be able to head out there and not be trained uh, to run a six-mile race in downtown Atlanta on July 4th. So I had run a couple, about three miles a couple times to prepare for it. So about halfway through the race, I was thinking, what have I done? (laughs) How?" I wanted to throw in the towel because I had not trained for this. Well, I think there's a whole category of situations that we all face in life that force us to think how do you get through what feels like an, un, uh, an unget throughable situation? How do you get through when it feels unget throughable? What do you do? Well, the answer for getting through the 10K, of course, was to train for it, hit the gym. So, with that, this morning, we're going to hit the gym with regards to our Christian life. For the next three weeks, we're going to be in Jim class. That's J-I-M, as in James class. Jim class 101. Three weeks in James chapter 1. And if you're not familiar with the book of James, let me just go ahead and tell you, it is one of the most practical and direct letters in all of the New Testament. The truth is, this letter could be read right alongside of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels because they just fit so neatly together. In fact, the passage we're going to look at this morning just goes so well with those Beatitudes and that first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So the author of this letter is James. James is the brother of Jesus. So he didn't just hear the Lord's sermon from like standing outside the crowds trying to get a good place where he could see and hear. This is somebody who knew Jesus in a real special way. They had the same earthly blood running through their veins. So he didn't just hear the sermons. He saw Jesus live this life out. And you can almost sense this perspective as you study through the book of James. So we're going to read a very memorable passage this morning in James chapter 1. And I'm going to read to you from verses 1 through 8. It says, James A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. "...who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." So James is writing to encourage Christians who are facing trials and offering them insight on how or what those trials might produce in their life and maybe practical insight of how to endure the trials. So this morning we're going to study the scripture with this question in mind. How do I keep going when I feel like giving up? How do I keep going when I feel like giving up? In my devotion this morning, I was in Psalm 69, verse 1 says, Save me, God, for the water has risen to my neck. Can you identify with David in that moment? I don't necessarily know all of you, know where you come from, know what you've experienced, know what you're going through right now. I don't know what you face once you leave this place. But I imagine there are many in the room today, many who are joining us by television, who are dealing with something very overwhelming this morning. Trials and tribulations. Pains and suffering and you feel weighed down and you have all kinds of questions and you've just got burdens That's all you've got to bring before the Lord in worship this morning and I'm sure some of you are tempted to think right now another Bible verse to make me feel guilty for feeling weighed down Well this morning. I don't want anyone to walk out of here with more burdens than you already have I don't want anyone to walk out of here thinking this is just lip service or kind of a nod to the difficult situation that you face. I want us to give consideration this morning to the Holy Scriptures and what God Himself might have to say to us as we ask the question, how do we keep going when we just feel like giving up? So, we're going to start by looking at James' opening greeting here to Christians who are facing difficult circumstances. In verse 1, I think we already get a fresh perspective of trials. Do you notice how James introduces himself there in the verse? Now, he could have said, James, the brother of Jesus. I imagine that kind of opened doors for him in certain places. You know what? He's my brother. (laughs) I know you, but he's my brother. But he doesn't do that. He, he, He doesn't say, James, an apostle of Jesus. Or James, the one who's called to be an elder, the leader of the Jerusalem church. It's me that's writing to you. Instead, he introduces himself. By using this Greek word here doulos doulos translated literally means slave that's what he calls himself I'm a slave he says James a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ now your version like mine might say bond servant it might say servant but the idea is slave that's how James saw himself now I know that the greeting is an easy part to skip over as you study the passage you know, who it's from and who it's to. But I think this opening greeting actually tells you something about this letter. James's epistle is going to be about the servant-lord relationship. And how do I persevere in the relationship? In fact, one of the themes of this book is how shall we live as servants of Jesus? We say we're servants of Jesus, but how do we live in that? How do we actually walk that path? You know how difficult it was for somebody like me to go out and run a 10K in Atlanta on July 4th through downtown? It was not so bad the first half. But you hit the backside of the race and uphill a couple times. And I'm about to just fall down. Well, being a servant to Jesus sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But true servants of the Lord practice servanthood even when they're suffering. They practice servanthood even when they feel hurt by other people. They practice servanthood when they're on the brink of anger. So James opens his letter by identifying himself as a bondservant, a slave to God, one who is enslaved to Jesus. That's how he assessed his life. And he addresses the letter to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, we don't know precisely which churches first ended up with this letter. But that's how we imagine it worked out. We've just been lost in history. He sent the letter, it went to churches, and then it got passed along from church to church. But we do have in mind who he's talking to here. He's writing to Christian Jews who are scattered outside of Jerusalem and to probably further further parts of the Roman Empire. Luke, in the book of Acts, tells us that there was severe persecution that came on the Christians in Jerusalem. And it caused them to retreat, to leave the city, and only the apostles stayed. In Acts 8, chapter 1, it says Saul, of course, this is the one who persecuted. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that's Stephen, putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we see the recipients of this letter are dealing with some very serious opposition. Sometimes you think, they don't know what I'm going through when this was written. We don't know what they were going through. They are dealing with real trials, real tribulations, serious opposition. In fact, the opening verse carries this implication that James is stating, I know you're suffering. I know you're being persecuted. I know you're facing trials because you are the 12 tribes dispersed. These are people that knew about Stephen. They loved him. They respected him. And now he's been stoned to death. He's been killed. Who's next? They know about Saul. They know he's going door to door, dragging people out, men and women, and throwing them in prison, perhaps. So they knew this situation. They're thinking, what if he knocks on my door next? So among the recipients of this letter are people who are confused and afraid, they're lonely. They're scared. They're thinking, what have I done? Why am I following Jesus? What's this all about? Have I made a mistake here? And James knows what they are thinking. And the truth is, when you read through the book of James, you've got to think of it in light of that. He's probably responding to all those emotions they're dealing with in light of the persecution they faced. And I think the message for them is the same message for you and me this morning. Especially if you find yourself in a difficult circumstance if you find yourself facing trials and tribulations, George Stulak says, don't put off your life of faith until times get better. Right now, in the midst of your circumstances, is the very time to be putting your servanthood toward Christ into practice. See, trials have the potential to derail us, don't they? We're living a life of service to the Lord. Trials come and we we feel pushback. And we start to walk away. But as servants of the living God, we are privileged to bear his name, even when the going gets tough. I have to say that I normally have a, uh, a good bit of, read a good bit of commentary in preparation for a sermon. I did that before this one, but I got caught up in one writer, and it was Dr. George Stulak. He's a pastor, a pastor long-time pastor, professor. And I was enthralled by his writing, so in a lot of ways, this whole sermon outline is a credit to his writing. And he pointed out how relatable this whole passage is to our lives today. He asked, when we encounter trials, what do we experience? Think about that. I don't know about you, but when I go through difficult circumstances, there's really a mixture of reactions and emotions that start to swell up in me. You know, I think, what what will happen to me? What will become of me? What's this going to mean for me? How can they do this to me? What have I done? I struggle with self-pity and envy. I think, why did that person get away with that? And now I'm having to face this. Well, I think that's exactly what the original readers felt too. And in many ways, the fallout from those feelings is what James addresses in this letter. So I figure that everybody in this room and those joining us by television are in one of three places. Either you are facing something very difficult right now. You have just come out of something very difficult. Or you're about to head into something difficult. Because that's pretty much how life goes, right? So I imagine that everybody knows this experience. And here's the bottom line for those times when you can identify with the diaspora that James writes to. Your trial is not the time to rejoice less. Your sickness is not the time to pray less. Your loss is not the time To love less. Instead, it's in those moments that we find the very best time to put on all of those actions and put all those attitudes of Christian service into practice. Because the Christian life is not some theoretical, trust God and everything will just be fine as you go along. It's the life of a servant. It's the life of a slave. So James opens his letter and he writes, greetings which is translated from the Greek word charion. That single word carries this idea, joy be unto you. So all of you are facing this joy to you. And so joy in the midst of the trial becomes the first major topic of James' letter. So we're going to look closely at verses 2 to 4 that many of you are already very familiar with. Now we're going to skip the first phrase, the whole "considered all joy part. We're going to go right up to where it says, when you encounter various trials, or when you face difficult trials, or when you experience or meet trials of many kinds. Trials are uninvited guests into our lives. Nobody wants them, but the reality of sin in a fallen world is that none of us can avoid them. We also know that it's through difficulty that we actually get stronger, right? Still waters never made a skilled sailor. So we know going through the difficulty, I might come out a better person on the other side. So as servants of Jesus, we answer the door when trials come knocking. In fact, James implies you are to expect that trials will come knocking. But let me clarify. When James writes trials, he's not speaking of the pain, what we experience as a consequence of our sins. He's not saying count it joy whenever you spout out at the mouth or you say something you shouldn't have or in a way you shouldn't have and now all of a sudden you get maligned for it. No, instead, he writes a different phrase to that. He says, tame your tongue. He's talking about something different here when he says trials. What he is referring to all those tragedies or those diagnoses or those, the reality of poverty that we experience even while we are walking in fellowship with the Lord. So as I follow the Lord and I feel like I'm doing the right thing, so it ought to come out, I, I, things ought to go my way, But in walking in fellowship with the Lord, we face tragedy. We face difficult situations. We face setbacks. That's what he's talking about here. But to be clear, what he chiefly has in mind is persecution that comes because I have faith in God. Now, Christians, of course, are not the only ones who experience trials. We don't have a corner on that. Everybody deals with trials. But James is writing in reference to trials we specifically face because we're Christians. Because we're trusting God through this, and maybe we get kind of treated different. Or maybe we don't get to experience what others do, whatever it might be. As Christians, we need to change our experience, or excuse me, our perspective on trials. As self-declared servants of King Jesus, we're called into service when it's not easy. And we also know that there is more than meets the eye. When we gen- what we generally see is only what's right in front of us. The things that we can just see right here. But the biblical perspective is that circumstances and events, are that's only the surface. We have to look under the hood to figure out what is really going on here. These trials come, but there is purpose that God may have for them in our lives. So James gives us a progression for these trials to be used for good in our lives. It starts with trials. So we all face these difficult circumstances and those have the potential to become testing for our faith. And the idea of testing that he writes about in the verse here is that it reveals what's genuine. Something gets tested to determine, is it genuine? Are you who you say you are? Do you trust in him like you say you will? Do you believe him like you say you do? So the trial comes and now it tests me to see if it's genuine. Now, I hate to mention tests because I know some of you, most, many of you, are headed back to school tomorrow. So, te- or this week at least. Teachers, students, college students, professors, administrators. And so, when you go into school and you deal with the test, the, the, what it's supposed to do is reveal is the knowledge there. Have you done the reading? You know, have you retained what you've heard in the lecture? Are you understanding what's being communicated up here? But this test that comes from trials can go beyond that idea of revealing. It is to be used for the purpose of developing. Testing can help improve us as disciples of the living God. So James says in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Trials produce endurance. That's why the sermon is entitled Endurance Trials. Endurance is patient perseverance. As you face trials uh, that test you, the question is this, can you remain faithful? Even when things don't change immediately. Can you continue to pray even whenever he doesn't seem to be answering? Can you hold on when you feel like you've reached the end of your rope? Patient endurance. It's also about discipline. It's also about faithfulness. Because trials come uninvited. But as servants of God, we welcome them into our lives. And we expect God could use this for something productive in my life. Because they're not wasted. It's a great liturgy from the scriptures. There is nothing wasted. God wastes nothing in our lives. You think, uh, you, you, you've experienced this. You've reflected back at something that was absolutely miserable. And you see, wow, God used that for this. So nothing's wasted. They actually have the potential to develop our faith. And so James describes this clearly in verse 4. He says, And let endurance have its perfect result. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. The picture, of course, is maturity. You can be mature as a believer. So James knows who we want to be. And he's holding it up for us. And he's saying the way to achieve this, to become what your goal is, to become more like Christ, happens because God brings us through what seems to be unget throughable. He brings us through it. He invites us to see ourselves in a state of spiritual maturity. John Ortberg calls it the life you've always wanted. When all of a sudden we get rid of the jealousy and the laziness. I don't know if you're like me, but I think I cannot believe I still struggle with that. Specific things in my life. Why am I still dealing with that? I want that kind of life. Well, sometimes trials help get rid of those things. Or maybe it's impulsiveness or impatience or bitterness, whatever it is, self-pity, selfishness, that thing that keeps you from being complete in your spiritual growth, God brings us through and all of a sudden we see that start to develop in our lives. So do you long to fully be the person that God has called you to be? That's what's found at the end of trials. That's what's found at the end of this persecution. Dallas Willard wrote, The main thing God gets out of your life is not the achievements you accomplish, It's the person you become. God is so much more interested in who you become than what you're able to do. So in light of that goal, as you consider what trials can actually do for your life, James writes at the very start of verse 2, consider it all joy. Because I know what God can do with it, so I can consider it joy. Now let me tell you this, happiness is a terrible substitute for this word in verse 2. Consider it all happiness. That's not what he means at all. Happiness is so much more a circumstantial thing. Joy is an objective decision. So James writes, count it joy. Consider it joy. But what do we bring on ourselves in light of the circumstances we face instead of joy? I don't know about you, but when I face circumstances, it's not like joy starts popping out all the time. Sometimes I try denial. I think, well, I'll just pretend like it's not happening. You know, I'll keep a smile on my face. I think it's spiritual, too. You know, I just ignore it and smile. No, everything's fine. And I just deny it. Rather than understand what it is. Instead of joy, we choose complaining. You ever tried that one before? So rather than being joyful, I'll just complain about it. I'll grumble about it. Now, it's one thing to pray that God delivers you from it. But let me tell you, there is nothing productive in complaining, in grumbling. Has anybody ever felt better because they've grumbled about it? Has anybody ever gotten better because they've grumbled about it? Has anybody become more like Jesus because they've complained? It does not happen. So we, we don't do that. Another terrible substitute for joy is self-pity. We just feel bad for ourselves. You know, oh, this stuff always happens to me. Of course it happened to me. I've been there too. Stulak writes, obeying while thinking poor me is different from obeying with pure joy. Because you've done that too. You say, well, I'm still being spiritual about it. I'm obeying. I just don't like it. But I do it with pure joy. So here's the thing. James actually believes that in the midst of painful trials in the Christian's life, there is definite basis for joy. Because I know if you're like me, you think he's not in touch with what I'm facing. But we realize now they're facing all kinds of terrible situations, and James actually believes you can count it joy. And so that's what he writes here. As followers of God, we are being formed into the likeness of Jesus. The question is this, is becoming uh, becoming mature in him more important to you than avoiding hardship? Because you you think, would, would you rather become mature in him or would you rather avoid hardship? Now, I need to address something real quick. James does not encourage us to seek out trials. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even say we're supposed to enjoy them while they're there. There's a difference between considering it joy and enjoying them. But there's this principle in the New Testament that there is something more important uh, important than just pleasure. There's something worse than pain. That's the principle. So what is it in your life that needs to have its full effect so that it can produce maturity? What is it? Are you looking under the hood of the circumstances you face and say, God, what are you up to in my life? Because I want to be available if you're trying to shape me to become more like you. But perhaps you don't know how to practically face this. And you think, I don't know what to do. I mean, this sounds so, you know, foreign. What are you supposed to do when the trials come? There's an old, well, James goes on to write about wisdom. And that's what we're going to look at now. Look at now. And there's an Old Testament example of a trial that the nation of Judah was facing. And they didn't know what to do. Because they were surrounded on all sides. And so... Jehoshaphat, the king, prays before the people and to God in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. You don't know what to do with the situation you face, but God, my eyes, my eyes are on you. Sometimes we face trials and we don't know what to do, so we go on autopilot. They bring on guilt. We think, if I would have done something differently, or maybe this is my fault, and that's what we do because that's autopilot for us. We get paralyzed with the guilt. Sometimes we just get confused, self-doubt. Why did this happen to me? Is God out to get me? I feel like everything else goes right for other people. What have I done wrong? Other times it's just fear. We get afraid of all the dominoes falling, so we're just doing our best to keep the dominoes standing whenever we're facing the trial because we're just afraid. Also, it brings up anger, but anger is unsustainable, and so it turns to just hopelessness, depression, lack of motivation. Well, James recognizes this is how most of us think when we face trials. And so it's as if, he's saying, if I could just get right in your face, and I could speak to your specific circumstance, and, you know, you're dealing with this guilt, let me tell you what to do. But he just gives us a silver bullet, since he can't grab us by the hands and look us in the eyes. And the silver bullet is verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Maybe it sounds overly simplistic. Maybe it seems out of touch with reality, but it's so practical. When you face circumstances and you don't know what to do, ask God. Get the Lord involved. Don't shut him out. Say, God, give me wisdom to face this. Verse 5 says, we ask of God, and James reminds us in verse 5, because he is a God who gives. Isn't that better than a God who takes? He's a God who gives. And who does he give to? He says he gives to all. That means not just those people, but he'll give to you too. And in what way does he give? He says he gives to all generously. He's not afraid he's going to run out of wisdom and the next person's going to come. And he's, so he just kind of, he gives to all generously because he has an unlimited supply. In fact, James says he gives to all, he gives generously, and he also gives without finding fault or reproach. He's gracious. He's not some father that when you go before him, he says, well, last time I gave you wisdom, remember how that worked out? He doesn't do that. We simply ask in faith, as verse 6 to 8 describes, ask in faith without any doubting. We trust God to be who he says he is. We trust God to do what he says he can do. Now let me address a couple of ways that people carry this too far. There's a whole movement that got started out of this verse called this name it and claim it movement. You know, where I can, all I have to do is ask God for it and believe I can get it and not doubt, and then it's mine. That's all I have to do. That thinking absolutely causes us to trust in ourselves rather than God. Because if I can just think it and if I can just believe enough, then it's mine. Rather than trusting God to know what's best. Secondly, people take this verse to teach the power of positive thinking. Positive thinking is good because it's better than negative thinking. But positive thinking is not magical We get afraid of our thoughts, and we think, my doubts have the ability to negate my faith. And we we, we think that we can manipulate God by our power of positive thinking. Neither of these ideas is what James is trying to communicate in this passage. Instead, he's saying, when you face difficulty, and you don't know what to do or how to respond, ask of God with faith. Ask him for wisdom so you can stand the test of faith. Are you inviting God into your situations? Trials can cause us to back away, but are you inviting God in? Are you saying, I need to pray about this? Or are you actually praying? I would say that seeking God for wisdom means you allow him into your struggles. You don't try to solve them yourself. You allow him to take the lead. Trials have the power to reveal our true character. They can make us stronger. They can even draw us closer to Jesus. But trials cannot have the last word the pain in your marriage will not have the last word the career struggle that you're facing right now does not get the last word the guilt you experience for whatever happened in your past does not get the last word the pain that you can't shake from some time in your life does not get the last word well how do i know that Because if you're in Christ, then Jesus gets the last word every time. He faced the worst trial we could imagine. He was rejected. He was betrayed. He was abused. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He died the death you deserved and I deserved so that those trials don't get the last word. And when death thought it had the last word, he was resurrected to new life, giving us the promise that if we believe in him, then he too will resurrect us to new life. So as you encounter a trial and you lack the wisdom to know what to do, stand the test of faith by asking God for the wisdom you need. Our Father in God, we thank you so much that we have practical guidance for dealing with life. Lord, I know people out here are really dealing with some very difficult things. I know I am. But God, you are faithful in every circumstance. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom. You would help us as believers in Christ, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, to consider it all joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. It's a time of response. Some of you say, you know what? I want Jesus to have the last word of my life. And you want to respond to the gospel. Maybe you want to join our church. Maybe you just need prayer, whatever it might be. I'm going to be down front with our staff. If God's working in your heart, then you respond. So I'm going to invite you to stand as the choir sings. You respond.